Hello, and welcome to Magic is Real, a podcast focused on exploring the fascinating world of near-death experiences, communication with spirit, and all things metaphysical and spiritual. The mission of this project is to share messages of hope and inspiration with others, and to spread the word that death is only an illusion. Thank you for being here with an open heart and mind. I wish you peace, light, and love always. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Magic is Real. Today, my guest is Bob Snow. Who is Bob Snow? Bob is a retired police captain, and he is the author of the book, Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic. I am really excited to talk with him because he, as he will explain to you, um, I really like to interview people that come from an atheist or a skeptical background who had a profound life-changing experience when, um, in his case, he had a past life regression and at first was very skeptical and worked to disprove that what had happened was real, but ended up doing a lot of research. Um, he had an investigative background. That was what he did really well. And so because of that, he really was able to dive deep and actually prove his own self wrong. So thank you, Bob, so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. Oh, such a pleasure. Well, as you, as you spoke about, I was a police officer at the Indianapolis Police Department for 38 years, and I served a lot of capacities there. I was the uh, chief administrative officer. I was the police department executive officer. I was uh, in charge of the homicide branch for a number of years, another another such jobs. But Interesting enough, I never really wanted to be a police officer when I was growing up. When I was growing up, at my youngest age, people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would always say a writer. I'd always, always want to be a writer. But anyway, so, but that's, that's a nice thing to say, but accomplishing, that's a different thing. So right. actually police work, I kind of fell into police work. I was, I, I was in the military in the Vietnam War, and after my discharge, I would look for a job. And my brother had joined the police department about a year before this. He said, hey, come on, they're, they're, they're really needing guys because the war was still going on then. And they're really needing guys real bad. Their, their choice right now is really limited. So I thought, well, yeah, good job. It paid pretty well, pretty good money. Then, you know, all good benefits. So I went down and joined. And it turned out to be a very fortuitous thing because not only did I have full-time employment, but I also had lots of subject matter for writing. Tons of, because I've written 20 books. And. All but all but my book, all my book uh, past, uh, about past lives have been about police stuff. It's been either true crime or how, how SWAT teams operate, how do you find missing persons, things like that. But this was a little different book. But interesting enough, that people don't realize to be a writer, you just don't sit and write all the time. You have to read a lot too, and you have to read not just for your field, but for every field. That way, if you see how someone has handled something really well. You kind of want to die, you kind of diagnose it and understand how they do this due to yourself. Or if somebody grows up really poorly, you want to make sure you don't copy that. So anyway, I've done a bit of a very avid reader my whole life. So I, I, I belonged to, used to belong to a lot of number of book clubs. And one month I saw that they, the, what the books they were offering was a book by Dr. Raymond Moody. It's called Coming Back. Dr. Moody had earlier been, been investigating near-death experiences, but he had a friend who was a psychologist who did past life regression therapy, which for people don't know, it's, it's where 
the the uh, psychologist or psychiatrist will hypnotize a patient and supposedly take them back to a past life, which many times that many times have an effect on they claim had an effect on this life. And actually, it's pretty effective therapy. But most of the psychiatrists, psychologists I talk to, don't believe it's real. They believe that the problem is psychosomatic, and so is the cure. And so they, they although they do use it, it's very effective. They don't, most psychologists guys don't believe it's a real past life experience. So anyway, after I read this book, and it was it was a well written book, kind of interesting. But after at the end, Doctor Moody isn't convinced himself that it's not just his imagination or or you know just subconscious bits of bits and pieces put together. And that's kind of how I felt about it. I didn't really think it was anything real serious. So a couple months later. I'm at a party at the police department party, and the, 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 there was a person there who she's a, she was a child abuse detective, but also a practicing psychologist. And her and I were talking at the party, and we were just talking about various things, movies, they see, television shows. We go around the books we'd read, and I mentioned to her that I'd read this book coming back. And she asked me what I thought about it. And I kind of belittled it quite a bit, because I thought, at the time, I thought it was really a foolish concept. I thought this is a bunch of whiners. Who are wanting to blame the problems in this life on a past life, which you have no control over. In other words, gee, I may have messed this life up real bad, but it's not my fault. It's a past life. So I, I kind of put a little quite a bit. I didn't realize at the time that this lady used past life regression in her therapy. She was the active user of herself. So I think I got kind of an insulting <laughs> enough that finally she basically dared me. Said, "If you think it's so silly, why don't you try it?" I'm not going to do that. No. But anyway, if I got to the point, Darren said, oh, you're scared. Now you don't want to ask a man if he's scared. Of course you're not. And so I finally said, oh, I finally, at last, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll show you how stupid it all is. Well, the next day, we'd had been a party and I'd had a bit of drink. And the next day you wake up, you're more clear. And I said, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. I'm not doing it. But it's funny. It seemed like from then on, I would run into this lady, the psychologist, every day almost to see. So before this, I swear I hadn't seen her at least once a month. But now I'd run her every day, and she'd always ask me, have you made the appointment? She had given me a name and a number of a friend of hers who did pass my progression. And it did, when I said, okay, I would try it. And she'd always ask me, have you made the appointment yet? And I'd always make up some excuse, oh, I've had two meetings, and I had to do this, and I didn't have time. But it kept getting back. Damn, I'd, I'd walk in the hall, and there she'd be. It's like, oh, God. There she is. And you'd have to come up some flimsy excuse. Well, finally, I just got tired of it. This is silly. So what I did, I thought, well, I'm going to head, I'm going to do it. That way I don't have to, because actually at the point where I was seeing her, I was trying to get away before she saw me type thing. I'm walking the hallway, but I hope she didn't see me first. So I thought, this is silly. So I thought, I will do it, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to show how stupid it is. I'm, I'm going to go there. I'm going to cooperate 100%, do everything the psychiatrist or psychologist want me to do, but I'm not, I'm not going to be hypnotized. I think I, at the time I thought I was much too strong, but strong will for that. So I, so I called the psychologist and made an appointment, and I asked her if I could bring my own tape recorder along. I want proof. I want to show proof that this is all a bunch of hope, that none of it was real. So I went. So I made the appointment, and I showed up. Very nice lady, Dr. Mary Ellen Griffith, this lady's name, the psychologist. Very nice lady. Very welcome me in. Very nice. And I, I said, you know, I told her, she asked me why I was there. I, told her, I just thought this was just interesting, and I wanted to try it. I didn't say I had any kind of problems or anything. She said, okay, sit down. So I sit up, turn my recorder on, and we start talking. So she talked, asked me to describe some things to her, and she wanted me to use a lot of imagery. She kept saying, "Okay, tell me, describe to me your college graduation." And I did, and she kept wanting more details. And she would out tell me about something in high school, 
our grade school, you know, and I could see what she's doing. She's going further and further back in my life. And I, I thought, you know, I, I'm just kind of rolling my eyes to myself thinking, okay, how silly this is. The finally she said, okay, let's get started. She says, close your eyes and see if you can see a balloon. Now I was sitting, the window was to my right at the summit out, and I could see a big purple blob on my, on my eyelids. I knew what it was. So I said, yeah, I, I can see a, a purple balloon. She said, okay. So now I want you to take, imagine you're taking this balloon up. So again, I'm all cooperate 100%. I'm going to do everything she asks so I can later on say, see, I told you it's stupid. So anyway, so I took the balloon. It's funny, I took a balloon up. It's like at the bottom of my vision, I can see little points of light. But I thought, nah, this is just glare off the floor. So. so anyway, we're up in the balloon. And she said, okay, now there's a handle over your head. I want you to reach up and pull it, and it will, it will bring you back down. So we went through this about a dozen times. <laughs> I mean, I would try to imagine, but nothing had happened. I mean, I'm, again, I'm thinking to myself, this is her daydream, not mine. Of course, that's going to happen. She was very, very gracious. We went through at least a dozen times. I was bring, okay, pull the handle, go down. But nothing happened. And I'm thinking, this is just what I thought. This is just people, weak-minded people trying to appease their, the, the psychologist. It's not real. So anyway, she said, okay, see if you can imagine a mountain in your mind. Okay, I imagine a mountain. She says, now, think about flying the balloon to the mountain. So this time, I think I was kind of tired of all this stuff. And I could actually see myself, imagine myself, seeing myself landing on a mountain. Now, this is very fuzzy, like, you know, imagination or daydream. I could see a log cabin. But interesting enough, the logs were going vertically rather than horizontally. One of my readers later wrote and told me that when we had the fridge built their log cabins. So anyway, she said, Dr. Griffith said, all right, now go inside the cabin. What do you see? Right, again, I didn't see anything. This is her daydream. And she said, okay, imagine a meal. So I'm trying to imagine a meal and everything. And she says, you know, sit down and enjoy yourself. So she said, okay, so now we're going to leave the cabin and we'll walk down some steps into a valley. There's 12 steps. And I want you to walk down these 12 steps. I said, okay. So I'm again, I'm trying to cooperate to everything I do. So anyway, we start walking. I'm walking the steps. And she's counting. And it was kind of funny. I almost laughed at the time because she did this. 12, then go real slow. 11, 10. I think, oh, God, what am I doing here? So anyway, we used to see counting down, counting down. And there's enough. When she got to one, something really bizarre happened. All of a sudden, I was in a valley. Not that, not that I didn't imagine I was in a valley. I went to the daydream. I was in a valley. Now, I knew at the same time I was sitting in this office on a kind of a hard couch. But but I could hear noise outside the window. But at the same time, I was in a valley. And it was not, it just wasn't a fuzzy picture or dating. This was vividly clear. Matter of fact, I was so clear I could see veins on the leaves of a, of a bush next to me. And, I, and then I wasn't stupid. I know what happened. I realized I'd been hypnotized. Now, I didn't think it could be, but I knew right then. Obviously, I have been. I said, oh, so I'm, she asked what's going on. I, well, I said, I'm walking along a brook. And finally, the leaves move and I could feel a breeze in my face. But I just kind of assumed it must have been the air conditioning in the room. So we're well, I'm walking on. She said, okay, now look down, describe yourself. So I look down, and I see two hairy, real hairy legs and kind of gnarly feet. And I'm carrying what looks like part of a tree limb. Now, everybody's seen movies and TV programs. Everybody knows what a caveman looks like. And I, I assume that's what I was supposed to be. I didn't realize until later on, I remember the moment when I listened to the tape again, she had told me to go back to the very first life you you'd lived on this earth, the very first one. I didn't remember that at the time, but apparently that's what she said. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm walking down, I'm walking down the, the, you know, walking down the valley and I'm talking. And all of a sudden, I, it's like I could see inside the mind of the person's body I was in. 
I told her all of a sudden, I live here. I said, I live in a cave up on the side of the hill. The funny thing is, I didn't know I was going to say that. I had no idea I was going to say that, just blurted it out without thinking. So anyway, she said, okay, she said, go to the cave. So I didn't really walk the cave. It was like a moment blurp, and also I'm standing from the cave. Now, interesting enough, I walk in, and this person who lived in this cave was not terribly hygienic. I had smelled this awful stench, and I couldn't, I couldn't imagine where that might come from. I thought, boy, this hypnosis is really working. It's really working. So anyway, I've described the cave to her and all that. And she said, she finally said, okay, I want you to go to your death. She said, I'll go to your death and tell me what you see. So actually there was maybe, oh, maybe two or three seconds of kind of like a gray fog. And all of a sudden it comes back in the vision. And I'm not in my body anymore. I'm actually floating above the body in the cave. Now look on the floor, there's a little kind of skinny man in first. He's shivering and coughing. I could see he was really, really sick. So I described that to Dr. Griffith, and she said, okay, says, what did you learn this life? And again, before I thought, I didn't know what I was going to say. All of a sudden, I just said it. I said, my, my purpose in life was, was to experience loneliness. I didn't have anyone in this life. I was all alone. And again, I'm, I'm flabbergasted because I'm saying this. I don't know why, why I'm saying it. So anyway, she told me to go out, the, go out the cave and said, look up. Do you see a light? And sure enough, there was a bright light over the valley. She says, all right, I'll go into the light. So... I went to the light. Then again, there were by maybe three or four seconds, it was gray frog, gay frog, fog. Before she said, okay, now I want you to go to a life where you had someone. Go to be a life where you had someone close to you. So I'm, again, I'm in this fog for three or four seconds. Then suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm a, it's like a scene to change the scenery. And I'm walking along a street. But for, I don't know how many viewers remember it. Oh gosh, probably in the 50s and 60s, a lot of times movie theaters, it start off, your film would start off real blurry. You couldn't see, you couldn't see very much as outlines. And that's the way this was. And then suddenly, click, it get real sharp. And all of a sudden I found myself, I was walking along a street in this really, really busy city. And the funny thing is, the sun was out hot and I could feel the sun on me. It was a real warm sun on me. And I walk along the street and Darkwood says, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to meet a woman. And again, I'm saying this stuff. I have no idea why I'm saying it. I said, I'm going to meet a woman. She said, okay, now you better, where do you go? I said, we go to an outdoor cafe, and I order a glass of wine, and she orders some kind of special water. So Dr. said, okay, well, we talked about this a bit. She said, go to five years forward, and what do you see? So again, I'm in the gray fog for a little bit, and all of a sudden I'm in an apartment, the hallway of an apartment, and I'm arguing with someone, who's a woman, who was apparently my wife, we were arguing about money. We were arguing about it, and I just finally just get mad and walk away. And I walk down the hallway into a room, and it's it's a artist studio. There's there's pictures all over the walls, dozens of pictures hanging. And up, to, up above, the whole ceiling is a skylight, and to my right is a whole wall of windows. And I describe I describe all this to her. And suddenly, I knew. And again, I didn't know, but who her body apps having? I knew as an artist. This is where I worked at. And she says, "Okay." So we I described it all to her. And she said, "All right, go go to go to go five years forward. What do you see?" And all of a sudden, I'm at a party. And I have no idea, but I'm, the, I'm apparently the object of the party. Everyone's going to congratulate me and tell me what, okay, how great it was to shake my hand. And I had absolutely no idea why why they were doing it, but I was the kind of star of the party. So anyway, I described all this to Dr. Griffith, and she said, okay. I said, now I want you to go to the goat, go forward another five years, tell me what you see. But interesting, interesting enough, I didn't want to leave. 
But I mean, this guy, yeah, I can feel what this person was feeling. It was a moment of a really intense happiness. He was so happy. It really felt good. I mean, how often in your life do you ever have moments of real intense happiness? Maybe it's your first wedding or the birth of a, of a first child or something. And I you know, didn't want to leave. She kept telling me, now go five years forward. That's the only thing about hypnosis. People seem to think if you watch tape dancing, because they can make you cluck like a chicken and do all kinds of stuff. It's not really true. You're really in control. Because again, she kept telling me to go forward. And I did. She had to tell me it three or four times before I did it. So, so next time, so she said, okay. She says, I want you to go to your death. I go to your death. So, okay. So I went to my death. And I see I'm, I see I'm laying on a bed and I'm, I'm died. Now, all of a sudden, I see my, my, my body go, my body go up like a ghost. I've never seen TV program movies of a ghost coming out of your body. Nobody knows what's going to happen. So I, 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 I saw myself rising up. She says, okay. She says, what did, what was your biggest regret in this life? I said, I, I regretted that we didn't have children because my wife couldn't have children. She said, okay. So I go, go up to the chief light. So I pass through the sitting of this building. And all of a sudden I see I'm over a huge city. I mean, it's lights for the, the horizon to right. And so I, she said, okay, go. there was light over the sea. She said, go into the light. But I did. Again, Dr. Griffith really wasn't control because I didn't want to. I saw myself instead of flying through some woods. And I could tell it looked like fall because it was a kind of a cold, blustery night, but the trees still had leaves on them. So instead of going to light, I went through the woods, and the next thing I knew, I'm on the second or third floor of a mansion looking in the window. In this room, there's a big roaring fire. Nobody's in the room, but there's a big roaring fire, and there's a, a painting over the fireplace. Now, Dr. Griffith, I wanted to see one of my paintings before I went. I wanted to stop and see one of my paintings. It was a still life with a bottle and fruit and big sun in the back. So finally, she finally said, come on, you got to go in the light. She said, I want you, she said, I want you to go to a life when you were a woman. I thought, I remember thinking, I said, yeah, that's going to happen. And so again, I went to about three or four minutes of fog, and sure, three or four seconds to give you a fog. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm come to, and I'm in the woods again. But this is not the valley. This is all level. And they were just the same kind of trees. And I looked down, and sure enough, I'm in a woman's body. Now, I'm, I'm laughing myself, thinking, this is really my imagination. This is really, this is really silly. This is your, again, your subconscious mind bringing up stuff, making you think it's real. At the actually, the whole experience to me at the time, I didn't believe it was anything but just hypnosis. But it was kind of fun. It's kind of like, you know, if you can go into Disney World and other places and have the greatest rides in the world, and it's maybe scary, I think, but you know it's not real. It's not, or you go have virtual reality things. You know, it may look real, it may feel real, but it's not real. And that's what I thought about this. So anyway, she asked me, okay, I, I she says, okay, what do you do here? I said, I told her that I work here because in front of me was a big, was an altar of types. It was a pretty good sized structure with pillars around, this, around the side. And again, all of a sudden, I know what this person's thinking. I said, she says, okay. She says, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I, me and a bunch of other girls work out the altar. We bring things down to the altar. She said, I, I said, she said, okay. She said, what do you, you know, describe yourself. And I described it as best as I could. And I also told her, I said, we all have to be, y'all, to get this job, you have to be young, pretty, and a virgin. Nobody, that's how we get to the job. And she asked me, says, okay, where are you at? I, for some reason, again, I, I had no idea where I was at. I just blurred out, we're in Greece. I had no idea why I said it. I said, we're in Greece. She said, okay. So she said, okay, now I want you to go five years ahead. So. I, again, there's some about two or three seconds of uh, gray fog, 
And next I see I'm in a wagon. There's being pulled by ox. And I'm next to an old, older man, much, much older man to me. And to my right is a little girl. But I instantly recognize her as a person from this life. This is my stepdaughter. But it wasn't the age when I had this done, this hip, the hypnosis. She was a teenager in high school. But this, is, this was her at the same age she was when I married her mother. And again, I told Dr. Griffith, well, they, they, they apparently, uh, I, since I've had a child, this is my child. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to, I can't work at the, at, the, at the altar anymore. So they sold me to this farmer. So anyway, we went to, a, went to the farm and he died real, real soon after he got there. So I'm, again, I'm, I'm all alone with a little girl. So I see myself taking her back to the altar and giving her to get the altar to work there. Now, at the time, I remember telling myself, and not myself, this, the per body I was doing, that this was the best thing for the girl, because they'd be taking care of her, she'll have a good life. But I knew what I was really doing. I was abandoning her because life would be a lot easier for me if I didn't have a little girl tagging along. And but I couldn't, the funny thing is, now this I was doing, I was doing all this stuff. And again, again, to me, it's like a ride in Disney World, and it's a lot of fun. But I felt this tremendous crushing guilt. I thought, I think thinking was how silly this is. This is not real. But I felt this terrible, terrible guilt about abandoning my daughter, just basically giving her up, taking off, you know. So anyway, I saw myself later. She said, okay, you know, go to your death. And I had gone to a fishing village, apparently, to live out my life. And I was older. I was pretty, I was fairly old when I died. I would go up, somehow got caught up in the nets of the fishing. I could feel myself swallowing water. I was caught up underwater in the nets. At the moment, for a second, I could taste salt water. I thought, boy, how how odd that is. But I had to, anyway, she finally told me, but Dr., I was so glad when Dr. Griffith told me going to the light. Again, I had this terrible, crushing feeling of guilt about this. And so she said, okay, she said, I want you to go into the last life you live before you were Bob Stowe, the very last life you lived before, you, before this one. And I was glad. I went to the light immediately. So anyway, but again, about four or five seconds of gray fog, and I find myself, I realize I'm in the back in the body of the artist. I had the one I had been before. I knew where I was at. It was back in the body of the artist. But I was at the moment, I was painting a portrait. But the interesting part was, I was painting a portrait of a hunchback woman. I thought how odd that was. I mean, how many, how many paintings of hunchback women have you ever seen? But, but the funny thing is, again, the, 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 the session, it was so clear. I could see every single brushstroke my painting. I could tell I was just getting ready to finish it. And I said, and I said to Dr. Griffith, I'm painting a portrait. I hate painting portraits. I really do, but I need the money. I can feel this desperate need, this person for money. So she said, okay. I described the whole thing to her. Interesting enough, she asked me to describe the studio. And I said, well, it's got skylight, the whole roof's a skylight, and the right, right window, wall is all windows. It was, you know, I thought, well, exactly like I had to jump before. So I was in the same place. So anyway, she said, okay, she said, go five years to the future. So I go five years in the future, and I don't wear a map, but I'm having this tremendous argument with someone about my painting, that, that the lighting wasn't good for my painting, it was being exhibited there. We have we had this really vicious, vicious argument. We went, we went through this, I scraped it to Dr. Griffith. She said, okay, she said, I want you to go and find more years for it. And I said, okay, so I go look at five years for it. I'm walking in the garden. And I hear piano music from a home. I'm real close to the house. So I walk into the house. I see my wife playing a piano with friends staying around. So again, I described this to her. She said, okay, now I want you to go five years further. So again, I'm in the gray fog for four seconds. But before, before the next scene come into it, 
all of a sudden I felt this real heaviness, sadness come over me. I, I, it was so, it was so bad. I almost felt like I wanted to cry, and I had no idea why. I kept saying she died of a blood clot. The doctor said she died of a blood clot. Now, I had no idea who this person I was talking about was obviously a, a person, a woman very, very important to this artist. Because again, I felt like crying. So anyway, before the next scene come on, the recorder I, belong, I had brought along clicked off and opened my eyes, and that was it. Now, now I'm a little flustered now because I had thought this is all really stupid foolishness. I, I really didn't think I could be hypnotized, but now that I had been hypnotized, I had gone through some really interesting, interesting scenes. Again, at this moment, I didn't believe it was anything. I, other than this, it was fascinating, but I believe it was just all hypnosis. So anyway, Dr. Griffiths asked me, he says, well, can you see how this relates to your present life? And really, I couldn't. At that moment, I was too flustered and confused. So I, I, I actually just made a few mumbling responses and went out to my car. And I remember I was sitting there for a long time trying to think about what has happened because it really bugged me. What bugged me about it wasn't what the things that happened, but the clarity of it. It was so vivid and clear. I could see, I could see the smallest thing. I could, I could see the veins and leaves. I could see every brush stroke of this painting. And that kind of, that kind of bugged me for a little bit. So if I had to, it was a bop. There's just your subconscious mind breaking up old pieces of old memories, reordering them into a story to make it look whole. That's all it is. As I go home, just forget about it. Well, that sounds good, but I could not get this out of my mind. For the next, oh gosh, month or two, that's all I think about. I would think about 50 times a day. And if I, here's enough, for the first couple of years after my session, if I closed my eyes, I could still show everything just as clear as I had when I was in the regression. I could still see the brush strokes. I could still see every scene as clear as I had during that. And I kept trying to tell myself, Bob, forget it. This is nothing. This was just a trick played by the hypnosis. Don't let it get you. But, it's thinking, but I was, I couldn't, I was just totally obsessed. And I was the police officer again for 38 years. And I know what happens to people who have really serious obsessions. It very seldom ever turns out good for them. So finally, I told myself, I've got to, you got to do something. Because I couldn't stop thinking about it. I just couldn't. So I said, you got to do something to stop this. And I realized what I need to do. Is I need to find one of the two paintings I'd see, either the Hunchback Woman or the Still Life. I thought if I could find one of those, then I'd say, oh, yeah, I saw that at the exhibition. Then he realized this is all foolishness. If I see this at the exhibition, that's how I knew it was real. And then it's all solved. It's just, it's, again, it's just memories brought up, reordered. It's really, it's really nothing. So I thought what I would do, I would go to the public library. Now, this happened pre-internet days. Now, in, the, in those days, you couldn't just type into a search engine, hunchback woman painting. Those days, you had to go to the library and pull books off the shelf. So what I decided to do was I go to the art section of the public library and start looking through art books. I figured, I figured he's had to be at least halfway famous painter. I would never have seen him. I'm not an art aficionado or know very much about art. So I figured if I had seen both of these, they had to be at least fairly famous. So I said, I had brought along a, bunch, a couple of yellow, long yellow legal pay, yellow legal pads and started off knocking off, you know, right down the book after I read it so I wouldn't double back and do, do, do it twice. And I went through every single book in the library. Now, amazingly, they had several hundred art books. It wasn't just like the 10 of them I had to go. There were hundreds of art books in the library. So it took me a whole couple of months. And I went through, didn't find a single one. Didn't find anything even close to two paintings. So I, you know, so I, thought, I didn't know what to do. So I thought I started that, well, maybe I'll try something else. So I started going to various arts at various bookstores. And then look at their art books. So they had some that were a lot newer, different in the library. 
I went to uh, B, B Dalton. I went to all these different bookstores, half price books, and all of them, and never found a thing. So now, now it's starting to bug me. Thinking, wait a minute, this because it seemed to me at first this would be an easy case. I'd find one of the paintings, remember where I saw it, case closed. Well, it didn't turn out that way. So finally, I didn't know what to do. I'd, I'd visit, so I even call. I even called around to a couple, a couple of local art galleries and described the paintings to them. I figured, actually, the Hunchback Woman painting. God, you know, how many could there be? But I found something interesting in them. They, there was no at that time. There was no central listing of paintings. If you want now, if you wanted a Van Gogh or Renoir, okay, they know they know where they were at. If you wanted a lesser painting, you had to basically know where it was at, or you had to keep calling art stores to see or art galleries to see if they do too. But there was no central listing. So I finally gave up. I finally said, what are they going to do? Okay, well, I need to find out what really happened during the Depression. Maybe if I really found what happened, I would know. I could explain some things. So I went to a new a new age bookstore in Annapolis and bought a couple of books on past life regression. And, and I was more surprised, mornly, that many other people had similar, similar experiences to mine. I found that it wasn't as uncommon as I thought. But I also found one book that would says self-hypnosis. You could choose to reportedly do past life regression by yourself. Now, this sounds good. Believe me, this was a lot harder than I thought it was. I tried this at least a dozen times, probably. And only twice at this, at this time, I could feel myself going to the same state I'd been in in Dr. Griffith's office. But they'd only last for a few seconds. I would see the number 1917. Then it'd flash off. I did it twice. Now, I had no idea what this was an address, amount of money, or what it was. So finally, now I, I told you I was the head of the homicide branch for a long time. And when I was there, we had an 83% clearance rate, which is very, very good. But that still means that every year, 17% of murders did get solved. And it didn't get solved because you run out of leads, you don't have enough evidence. And I figured that's what this is going to be. I'm just going to, have to close the case. I don't have anywhere else to look, nowhere else to check. So I thought I'll just I'll just put it on the shelf and forget about it. Well, that sounds good. I didn't. I put it on the shelf. But I didn't forget about it. But anyway, uh, a month or two later, my wife's my anniversary was coming up. It was in April, and I said, "Shit, we were excited to go somewhere. We want to go on vacation someplace neither of us had ever been to." And so she called me one day at work. Said, "What do you think about New Orleans?" I thought, "So that sounds like fun. I'd never been there. She'd never been there." So we planned a trip for New Orleans. So we flew down to New Orleans. And we stayed there for almost a week. And my wife is a real history buff. Now, you can't throw a rock in New Orleans. I have something of historical value. So we visited the battlefield 1812. We visited all kind of plantation homes and things. At nighttime, we go down to the French Quarter, listen to the bands, have some drinks and all that. So anyway, the last day we were there, our plane didn't leave till the evening. So we had all day there. And I told her, well, because when we were going on to the French Quarter, I always noticed there are lots of really neat shops down there, memorabilia stores, antique stores, and these kind of things down the French Quarter that were never open. We went down there to visit the bars. And so I said, why don't we spend a day window shopping in the French Quarter? So we did. We went We went down and we went to a bunch of antique stores, memorabilia stores. When we finally got to Royal Street, and Royal Street at that time was all art galleries. So we started going to the art That's some beautiful beautiful things and some of these guys are very beautiful paintings and we started going to each one down the street down the street and we finally got to the very end of the street and there's a little small art gallery there and i walked in the door and it said modern art upstairs it's a two-story building my wife a fan of modern art i never have been but she went upstairs so i started walking along the the, the, the main floor i'm looking at the paintings i don't recognize any of the paintings or any of the artists again i'm not that big on art anyway 
So anyway, I'm walking along looking, and I'm looking. Now, now I get to the corner, and there's a, a, a portrait on the easel, and I just kind of glanced by as I walked by, and it was like I read into a, a glass wall. It was a portrait of the hunchback woman. Now, you know, I was a police officer 38 years, and I got into a lot of scary situations, a lot of very frightening situations. But though, the thing about that, the difference is, in those situations, I'd had training and experience and knew what to do and knew what my best response would be. In this case, I had, I was, again, it was just as frightening as anything I've ever been involved in at the police department. But I had no, no training, no experience. So I've looked at this painting, and I'm thinking, no, 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 no. This doesn't happen to people in real life. This happens on TV and the movies. This does not happen in real life. It just does not. And I'm thinking, okay, Bob, this is not, this looks like it. This is close. It's not the real painting. But then I close my eyes, and I can still see the brush strokes. Never really this was the painting. So next time, considering maybe I'm not really here, maybe I'm at a nursing home somewhere or at a hospital with what you know, wires and tubes running it on me. This is just my imagination. Because again, these things don't happen. They just don't happen in real life. There has to be some logical explanation. The, the fact I'd look for months, I'd see this in a regression, search for months, not find it, to just stumble on it to by accident. New Orleans, come on. There's, there's no way. That's the odds are way too high. So I'm, yeah, probably for five minutes, I'm standing in front of this painting, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. There's something wrong. But while I was doing this, apparently a salesman saw me and thought, hot dog, <laughs> this guy must like it. You come over and tell you, he said, I bet you're thinking how that nice to look over your fireplace. Like, yeah, that's what I want. I'm a of hunchback woman on over my fireplace. But anyway, <laughs> I said, I said, look, uh, I don't know the artist. Who, who painted this? He said, well, I said, I come over. I have a little bio of him over here. Said, oh, good. So I looked over, and the man's name was J. Carroll Beckwith. He's the artist. He said, I got a little biography. And I looked at it, and, I, and all of a sudden, I've got these chills because I found five confirmations really of what, I'd, what I had seen during regression. One thing, there, what, there was a painting of the Hunchback Woman. It wasn't just my imagination. That, and there's enough, I found that he had been born in 1852. He died 1917. I remember my time that uh, two hypnosis, the 9197. And unfortunately, I told the, you know, that the Dr. Griffin, when she'd asked me about it, my, the very first regression artist, she asked me, what time period is this? And I said, it looks like late 1800s because there was gas lights and horse-strong carriages. And he had lived there. He had lived during the 19th century. They said he spent some time in France. I remember telling Dr. Griffith, we were in France one time. And also said he'd won a number of prestigious awards. And I remember at the party. But I'm thinking, about Bob, cool down, Bob. This, you know, you can make a lot of guesses about things. This don't mean they're true. This is just lucky guesses. That's all it is. But now I knew I, I, got, the, I got some information. I have a name. I can go back to Annapolis. I can, I can take this case off the shelf, reopen it, and just solve it. I figured somehow I've seen Beckley paying somewhere else. Now, the fact I found it in New Orleans is awful basic coincidence. But I kept trying to justify it to myself. I kept saying, well, you know, it's probably one to 10, 20 million chance. But then again, you think about the Powerball lottery and these kind of things. They're not one, we want the 300 billion, but people still have to win them. So I figured that's all this is. This is just a, a Powerball luck type thing. So I went back to Indianapolis, went to the Central Library. And again, this is pre internet days, so I had to go into the library. So I actually talked to the librarian and told her I was researching J. Carroll Beckwith. And she, she said, okay, let's see what I can find for you. Well, believe it or not, there was very, very little. There was probably, when she got everything together, less, maybe one long paragraph information about him. Apparently, he was not a very famous painting. And he wasn't terribly successful. He was mainly a portrait painter because that's the only way he could make any money. He'd painted other things, 
but he couldn't, he could, he couldn't make any money. He could on portraits. But anyway, I started reading the information. Again, I get this bad feeling because I, I keep finding confirmations. I keep, like, for the, if I found out he had died in the fall, I said I thought it was fall, and he died in October. I said he died in a large city. Well, he died in New York City. I, when I came up to the roof, I saw a very large city. It also said that he painted portraits but didn't like them. I so said that to Dr. Griffith, that a painted portrait like it. He also painted portraits because he needed the money. Last thing he said, he liked to paint portraits. They had a lot of color and the sun in them. And I'd seen that still life had had bottles and fruit and the big sun in the painting. But again, I'm telling myself, come on, Bob, this is still, this, these are small things. This could be a coincidence. You could just be really lucky. Finally, the librarian told me, she says, well, you know, we don't have that much airbase here. You go to the library at the art museum. There's an art museum, a big art museum north side of Annapolis. Says, go to the other library. They have much more extensive information than we do. I said, okay. So I went I went up to the library and talked to the talk lady at the library. But again, I found out they just didn't have much more at all. She said, she said that they don't. And I asked her, I said, that's all you got? She says, he wasn't that famous. They make be honest. He wasn't that good. He wasn't that famous. But anyway, so one thing one they noticed, one of the little things she did find me at the bottom, it said there was a little footnote that these this information came from the diaries of James Carroll Beckwith that are on that are now held by the National Academy of Zion, New York. So I thought, okay, I know I know what I have to do now. I'd already had ten confirmations. I thought, no, I've got to do something. So I what I did. And so I ended up calling the National Academy of Design New York and asked them if I could have access to diaries. They said, no, no, no. Said, we don't ever let them out. They're too fragile. They said, however, there has been, they have been microfilmed, and you get a copy of microfilm from the Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian. So I went back to the, I went back to Central Library and ordered, ordered the, the microfilm of them. So anyway, well, they, they said it'd be about two weeks. So I'm, while I'm waiting, I went and listened to my tape again. I wrote down everything that could be confirmed or not. And I found there were 28 things I had said that could be confirmed or not. Now, what I was looking for at this time, I was really, I didn't, I was really flustered because this time would work out the way I thought it was going to work out. And I'd already confirmed 10 things out of 28. And this wasn't, and, well, again, I kept telling myself, this, they're not big things. They're not big. You could have guessed these about somebody. So I thought, well, what I need to do is get his diaries, read them. What I was looking for at this top point just one denying factor. If I could one, find one thing about that blatantly wasn't true. For example, I had said that my wife, we didn't have children because my wife couldn't have children. If he had four kids or something, then this whole thing's wrong. I mean, okay, he, I said that we didn't have children, but we did. So this whole thing's wrong. There's some, this is not really a real past life you're looking at. There's something garbled up here. Or I thought, he, for example, he drank, I found that he drank wine the time he's meeting a woman in New York. He, dry, he asked for a glass of wine. Well, if he's a teetoter or didn't drink wine at all, then again, one of those things, that's what I was looking for. But otherwise, this is getting kind of scary. It was really getting kind of, because more, not so scary, upsetting, because it's upsetting, kind of upsetting my worldview of things. I was looking at something that wasn't turned out the way I thought. So anyway, finally, the library called me and said, your microfilm has arrived. Okay, so I run down there, and I found it was 17 spools, I mean, I'm sorry, nine spools, 17,000 pages. Beckwith had started his diary at 19 and entered it every day until the day before his death at 65. Wow, fact, that's a lot of entries. It's a, yes, I found, yeah, nine, stool, nine spools of microfilm at 17,000 pages. Fortunately, I found also that they had included, he had started, he had written an autobiography. 
this last year of his life, in 1917, he had moved to Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara, California. He was pretty, pretty sick. He was he would actually end up dying of a heart of uh, endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart valves, which kind of like a heart attack and died. But anyway, he started it. But unfortunately, when I, I pulled it up and it was all typed. But he, he, again, he only got to age 21, which didn't help me. But I also found that he had, had pulled some pages out. Someone, or he or someone else, had pulled some pages out of the diary and typed them. So I thought, well, maybe read them. But the only thing, only thing I found though was he talked about in 1875 he was at, uh, attending art school in in uh, Europe, and he had spent the, he spent the summer in Venice. He said, while I was in Venice, I lived on burnt eggs and wine. So again, I checked off another one. I checked off I checked off another one. So anyway, I, I finally finished reading all the type of thing. I found number one, he did drink wine. Number two, there was a part about his wife. On, on October 24th, exactly 29 years before he died, his wife had had a very serious miscarriage. And after that, couldn't have children. And they didn't have, they didn't have any children. So again, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still looking for the one thing I'm looking for. So right now, okay, now I got 17,000 pages. And I haven't found the nine factor yet. I thought, what I need to do, I need to get some analysis input. One of my biggest admonishments to my detectives when I was charged a homicide was don't get personally involved in your cases. If you get personally involved in your cases, you lose you lose the wide view. You get a very narrow view on things, you can miss things, you don't. But believe me, I was rarely, I was fairly personally involved in this. And my wife was also a police officer. She was a child abuse detective for a number of years, a police department, an excellent detective, good interrogator, excellent detective. So I thought, I need to tell my wife about this and see what see if she got some insight I don't. Well, that didn't go well. She thought I was nuts. She really did. When I explained what it was, she really thought I was nuts. And I, I was trying to say, wait a minute, now look what I found. Look what I found. Here's the tape. I had her listen to the tape, but look what I found. Basically, what she told me was, no, Bob, you've seen a movie or read some books about Beckwith. You just forgot them. Well, there are no books about Beckwith, none. There were never any movies about him. He was a very insignificant portrait painter. That's all it was. But anyway, she says, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll find him. So I'll investigate this, and I'll tell you how you found him. Yeah, actually, I was glad to hear her say that, because that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted a completely you know, third, th you know, third party into this thing that had no connection to it. And she, like I said, she had, she was an excellent detective. So anyway, she spent about a month, but she couldn't find anything. Absolutely nothing more than I found. But they get in discouraged her. She said, okay, so I can't find anything. Shut up about it. Says, police captains do not go talking about past lives. They, police captains do not go tell you spouting off this new age stuff. So well, she said, maybe you did find something, or maybe it is. Never mind, nevertheless, shut up about it. <laughs> you know, and I thought about what you said, and I thought, well, you know, she's right. This wouldn't go good for my career, probably, if I go spouting off this stuff. So I thought, well, so I just sent the tapes back to the, uh, to the Smithsonian, and so I got on, I got on my life. So anyway, I went there much, met my race longer. I was starting, I was at that time, I wasn't writing books. I was writing uh, articles for magazines. I, so I had written a number of magazines, a number of police magazines, and I was thought I had an article idea that, that I got approval for the magazine to write an article about line of duty deaths and police departments. What do police departments do when they have an officer killed, particularly small departments who aren't, who never had this happen before. So we had just had an officer killed a few weeks before that. And I, so I called a friend of mine, she's a, a police captain who had been to the scene. And I asked, talked to her and I asked her, you know, tell me what happened, what you saw, what you did. Well, 
Well, she told me about it. She suddenly told me about having an out-of-body out of experience during the thing. I, I flabbergasted. I'd never heard anything like this before. And she, very matter of fact about it, she said she came up and found that she was the first person on the scene and found the officer. And he was, he'd been shot in the chest with a shotgun. So she knew he was dead. There was nothing, she had nothing to do to save him. But she said she suddenly realized that she didn't know where the shooter was, that she was completely exposed herself to the shooter. She said the next moment, she said, I saw myself about 20, 25 feet above it. I'm, I'm, I see myself leaning over the body, examining the body. And she goes to describe I mean, I have never heard anybody say about anything like that before. So I, I thought it was kind of amazing. So maybe a couple of weeks after that, I'm in, court, in federal court as a witness in a trial. Now, when you're in federal court, the witnesses aren't allowed to sit in on the trial because I don't want you to be prejudiced by their testimony. So me and a bunch of other police officers are in a room off the courtroom, and police get together. They're always telling police stories, trying to outdo each other. So anyway, this one, this other police captain I do was there telling a story about when he says a young officer, he and his partner had been in a drugstore buying something, and somebody come running in and said, officer says, there's some guys holding up the supermarket next door. So he said him and his partner went over there and went to the door, and sure enough, there were about four or five guys with shotguns holding up the grocery store. And one of the guys yelled, they're cops, kill them. So he said, they, of course, they got their guns out and they were firing each other. They backed out in the park lot. He said, during the gunfight, all of a sudden I see myself way up above. He said, he said, I thought I died and I'm just reliving what happened before I died. But he told the story about being having another eye body experience. So anyway, after that, I started thinking, maybe this is, well, I've never heard any stories like that ever. But I was there, this, I probably had 20, 25 years on that. And I'd never heard any stories like this. So I started doing some discreet and, you know, inquiries on the police department, but other people had these instances. And there was a case I come upon where some officers were called to a house. They, 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 they said that they, they thought it was a disturbance. And I, so I asked, I got one of the guys in and sat down and I told him, you know, this is just between me and you. I won't tell, give you your name. I won't tell you anything about it. He said, okay, we got to call this house about a disturbance. So I drove up and this lady had run out the door and a big plate, ceramic plate come out after her. Now he figures this is domestic disturbance. It's the husband and boyfriend, wife or husband and wife type thing. And he talked to him. She said the house is going crazy. He said, "Excuse me." He said the house is going crazy. He said to him, "At that time, a couple more officers were up. They went back in the house. He said things were just flying off the wall. They were on. They'd fly off shelves or off walls and smash. And he said they didn't know what to do. I mean, they would they just sit there and all of a sudden they said this big plate or a big pitcher come off the shelf and just crash on the floor. So they backed out of the house and called our chaplain. Well, he came to the scene, did some praying and everything, but apparently it didn't work. And I didn't realize it, but apparently every Roman Catholic diocese has a priest who specializes in this sort of thing, exorcism and this type of thing. So they called this priest to the scene, and he did some kind of ceremony, and it stopped. Now, again, they see, but he's a guy said, now look, don't ever tell anybody who I am or I said it, because people think I'm crazy. But he, they also said the people that own the house begged the officers, please don't tell anybody where this is at. Or what happened? Because we'll have every nut in America trade parts on our doorstep. So they said, they all thought that was a pretty good idea. But after hearing this, I thought, wait a minute, these these things happen to other people. Why should why should I tell what happened to me? So I reordered. I thought I'm I'm not doing it. This is this would be a really a good book, really a great book. I think if I could you know if I could get it be end up you know, get enough information to make it. So I reordered the uh, my the, the uh, microfilm, and I had it all converted to. Uh, hard copy seven it right now it fills up a great great big uh, great big box it's a, it fills up to seventeen thousand pages fills up quite a box but before i got into that though i decided well i need to go back to new orleans to at least get a picture of this painting 
Otherwise, who's going to believe my story? I'm telling you, yeah, there's, I got a picture of her best woman. You got to, you know, show it that it really existed. So my wife and I went back to New Orleans and went to, went to this art store and we got there. It was closed. Oh, hell. So uh, again, I start canvassing the neighbor, as police will do, if you can't look for something, and talk to various star stars. I finally found the art dealer who had bought the inventory from the store. And I described the painting to him. And he said, oh, yeah, I remember that. He said, well, it's been sold, but it's been sold. I said, well, can you contact the owner? Tell him I'd like just like a picture of everything. He said, no. He said, I'll probably do. He gave me a little pre-printed card to have my name, address, and phone number. He said, but fill this out. I'll send it to the owner. And if he's interested, he'll call you and talk to you. Uh, I didn't realize at this time, but art dealers religiously guard the names of all their customers for various reasons. Number one, they don't want the, the people to know they people have you know thousands or hundred thousand dollars of artwork. Number two, they don't want the other art dealers to know who their best customers are. Right, and that's all he'd do it. So I did it, but never never heard from anyone. Never heard from. Him. So I said, well, okay. So I went back to the bank and that was, and I started reading the diary. It took me over a year. Beckwith was kind of a scribbler. And they used pencil a lot of times. So you had to go over every page, you probably five or six times to see what he said. But again, this time, I'm going to, all I'm looking for, I just want one denying factor. So I'm starting to look. I'm starting to look. So anyway, but unfortunately, every time I'd find something, it would always be the opposite. It'd be one more little. They're almost all little confirmations of things, you know. But, but lots of, some of them work. But for example, I saw him, I described him to Dr. Griffith, I told her, that I have a walk, fancy walking stick. Well, I found there's about four or five mentions in the thing of, of, the, of a walking stick. But again, I think, eh, probably everybody back in them days did that. You know, and I, again, you know, I said, Dr. Griffith, that I, I painted portrait, I need the money. Well, Beck was the biggest whiner I ever seen. Every second of third page of his diary is he's whining about not having enough money. God, he just, God, he whined constantly about it. I remember telling Dr. Griffith, I need the money, I need the money. And that's all he whined about. Interesting enough though, if you look at his financial status, he was actually pretty well off financially. He really was. I mean, he had that money. He built himself a summer home up in the Catskills. So his wife, every year they go there. The opposite year, they go and spend the, year, the summer in Europe. So I don't, I don't, you really couldn't classify him as being poor, but you listen to his diary, you'd never believe it. So anyway, I've, I went, I, so I looked on the list and I got to a point. He's talking about having a piano in his apartment. And it had a house guest because I'd see my wife playing the piano. And sure enough, he said, yeah, his wife played the piano. And again, this is, I'm, I'm looking for the big one. I'm still looking for the, the, the delaying, denying factor. So anyway, he got to one point where he describes his studio. He said, yeah, it's, got, it's a long room. He said, there's paintings hung everywhere. The roof is the, the ceiling is the skylight. And the right wall is all windows, which is exactly the same way I discovered it. Now I'm, I'm starting now, I'll tell you the truth, now I'm getting a little funky because I'm thinking, hey, I don't know if I'm going to, I don't think I'm going to find it. I don't know if I'm going to find this for all. So anyway, there were a number of mentions in the book that he, about drinking wine. He really, so I thought this might be the discreet factor. I was in the impression in the late 1800s and everything that many who drank, drank whiskey. And he mentions a diary that people thought that drinking his love of wine was odd. But he said he spent five years in Europe at art school and he just kind of picked up a desire for wine. So anyway, I keep, keep finding this one factor after another. I found out that again, his wife had a, had a miscarriage. He couldn't have the children. But anyway, I finally got in the diary to December 5th, 1886. Now, before that, at the end of my regression, just for a click to my record clock, I had said, she died of a blood clot. The doctor said she died of a blood clot. Now, I knew who it was as a woman very important to Beckwith. Well, on December 5th, 1886, his mother was in church and died of a blood clot. 
I think this was the side of the factor that pushed me over the edge. I mean, you can guess a lot of things about people. You really can. You can guess and be right. You're not going to know that his mother died of a blood clot. I mean, there were only two women in his life were really important, his mother and his wife. His mother probably more than he knows his wife. Because his mother, his dad was a retail grocer and wanted him to go into the retail grocery business. He wanted to be an artist. And his dad always told me he didn't know a better way to start death than being an artist. But his mother had really encouraged him. She bought him his first teaser on five his paints and talked to his father to let him go to art school and various things. So he, he really dearly loved his mother. But the fact she died of a blood clot, which is, to me, that pushed me over the head. And what eventually happened, I eventually all 28 things I'd seen. Now, you know, the point that that wasn't that hard part of this whole situation. I mean, you can make some guesses. You can't get 28 out of 28. That's simply not possible. I mean, you can you could probably make guesses, maybe get five or 10 correct, but I could not, you could not get 28. So again, but that wasn't the hard part. The hard, the hard part was accepting what it meant. Okay, now I proved this. What does this mean to your life? What it meant is you have to relook at your whole worldview. Your whole worldview is wrong. All the things I, I was raised in Methodist. My mother, well, you, went to, you have a dot note from the corner not to go to church. I mean, you get up every Sunday with the church. And I didn't remember anything ever hearing Methodist Church about reincarnation. So I'm realizing my whole worldview is wrong. That every everything I thought how the world was is not. It's, and all the people I thought were kind of weirdos and goofballs were actually right, and I was wrong. To me, that was the hardest part of the whole thing. It just really was. To, to change my, that took a while. You got to change your whole worldview of how the world operates because of this. And that, that was tough. Now, I've had a number of people ask me, you know, what does this all mean? You know, Phil, you know, what does this all mean? But I told them, I, I'm a cop. My job is investigation. And I, that was my job at this. I'm not a philosopher or theologian. And that's why I really can't give it. All I can give is what I found. And that's basically what my book's about. My book doesn't enter any kind of philosophic or theological arguments. It basically tells what I found. And it's up to you, the reader, to decide what the what the theologic, theological or philosophical implications are. Right. Yeah, that is incredible. Thank you so much for, I know you've told that story so many times, and I appreciate you giving it the energy that you did. There's so much in there, especially what really struck me that's so interesting is how also, I believe, spirit led you to helping you figure out this mystery. Because you going to New Orleans feels very divinely inspired to me um, that there's so much at work. It's not just reincarnation. It's this greater, this greater thing. Um, and that's so interesting. Also, having come myself from an agnostic and at times atheist background, it, it's so relatable. All those questions that you have. Um, I've been sharing a lot that I'm a medium, but I just started doing this work in the last year and a half. And I constantly question, did I just get lucky? Did I just guess that? And there was a woman who was watching this. Hi, Kathy, um, who I read for. She is a listener of this podcast and uh, brought through her son that had passed away. And even afterwards, I thought, what if, I wonder how much of that is right. And she said, Shannon, you got, and it was something like 20, uh, 20 something things that were right. She said, I, I went through and I listened to yeah. it back. And she's like, you know, you had this many hits kind of thing because it's so hard to wrap our human minds around. I also appreciated what you said about the, 
it shifted your whole paradigm. I was just yeah. saying the other day that I remember when I used to think that um, Shirley MacLaine was a nutcase and you're yeah. like, oh, that, that kook. And now I'm like, she was a, a renegade and ahead of her time and how brave for her to come out with this stuff and say it so matter of factly. And, and we all just went, oh, she's crazy. And <laughs> now I know that she actually knew what was up. So it's really easy to, to, to relax and get back, say, well, they're just nuts until you find find it yourself. And then it's like, ow, ow. Yes. And in fact, similar to you, one of the reasons I began to study mediumship was to prove it to myself that it was real because I was so I, interested in it. I was trying to do it. the opposite. I was trying to prove it. Well, I was trying it to wasn't. prove it wasn't real. But you know, a lot <laughs> right. of times in investigations, murder investigation, others, you got, you, believe it or not, but most murder, most homicide techniques, when you start a case, you have an idea who did it. You already got the case solved in your mind, but sometimes you find you're getting information. You realize I'm going the wrong way. Yeah. This is not turned out. You got to reverse your, you got to reverse course and head another way. You realize you were completely wrong and it's not the way you thought. There's another person that actually did the murder type. Well, this like in this case, I started off the program was wrong, but you get up far enough along, you realize your head's wrong. Hey, boy, Bob, this is right. But you know, I always wonder sometimes if this was meant to be. I really, because a lot of time during this investigation, I had a lot of information basically dumped in my lap. Come from, just come out of nowhere. I have information about Beckwith. For example, in his diary, he had talked a number of times about working on his scrapbooks, but I could not find out where, I checked, checked, couldn't find where his scrapbooks were at. Well, I was talking to a lady who specializes in investigation of American art. Apparently there's a lot of forgery in American art, and she's an expert in, in detecting forgery. And we were talking about Beckwith and Spain. She said, just out of the blue, I didn't ask her anything. She says, you know what scrapbooks at the New York Historical Society, don't you? It's one of those things like, oh. So I had to go, I actually went to New York to look at them. There was nothing in them. Actually, there was only things that were substantiated. Or actually, there were like pictures of his wife playing the piano. And there was, a, interesting enough, Beckwith, there was a, an art, there was a, actually about 10 copies of an article. What the, the one I would read was in the, the Parish Herald and on February 5th. Of, of, of 1913, where Beckwith had gotten a heated argument about the lighting for his, one of his paintings. And I'd see myself in a heated argument about the light. He'd actually take the painting off the wall and took it home with him. Type, you know, this guy, except the only thing I found in the scrapbook was more confirmation. Here's enough. Also, when during the investigation, I was looking, one, thing, one of the sources about Beckwith, the librarian found for me, has said he died of suicide. And I thought, I don't remember any of that. I thought this could be the denying factor right here. Yeah. If he'd killed himself, I didn't see any of that. This is the whole thing wrong. So what I did, I called the the New York City American Medical Examiner. Now, and I told him I identified who I was. I was Captain Snow, the head of homicide branch, and told him I need some assistance. And he was, you know, no problem at all. And I told him I need a death certificate. Uh, and he didn't seem terribly surprised. I told him the man died in 1970. <laughs> the he sent it right to me. And it says that Beckwith died of endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart valve. Actually, he'd been in a walk on Central Park the day he died, and he'd, he'd had a heart attack. He, he, was, he lived long enough to get back to the apartment, he died in his wife's arms. But, I, but this is why I think something. But so I think for an ordinary citizen called the medical examiner, you may not have got the information. But being yeah. the head of a homicide branch, they call him, he was more than cooperative. I, I'm just surprised he didn't ask why 1917. It'd be, surely be an old case, but. He didn't. I got a copy of his death certificate. That's oh, why that's awesome. I, I kind of yeah. wonder if maybe I wasn't meant. You kind of wonder maybe this this is what you were intended to do. You need somebody with investigative experience and someone with little authority that you could actually get things done. Right. Um, and I'm echoing a little bit suddenly. Um, one of the things that you touched on was 
when you first went into your hypno your hypnosis, you said it was well, not, when you saw the leaves and you saw the veins and it was so vivid, but then the rest of it just felt like imagination, right? And um, is that correct? When you started to see yeah, Beckwith's I, well, life? I, I just, you know, I knew this. I knew I'd been hypnotized, but I figured this is, again, this is my subconscious mind breaking up images of things. I just couldn't get over the vivid, not that the fact that it happened, the vivid, I mean, it was so vivid. It was as clear as I'm looking now. If I look at my room now, it was just that clear. I could read the small print. I could, not again, I could see veins on, you know, the leaves, on, you know, veins and leaves and things this minute. I, I, I never imagined the hypnosis could be that clear. I would always, I would assume right. you'd see some, I'd assume you see some foggy thing, you know, maybe see a picture or see somebody move into the fog. But this was unbelievably clear. That's what thing. really, because that's what really concerned me about when I first come out. Not that what, you know, not that I didn't think I'd be hypnotized, but I couldn't believe how clear it was, how vivid and clear. Again, for several years after the regression, if I closed my eyes, I could still see the hunchback woman painting. I could see every breaststroke. Now that's since faded, I can't anymore. But yeah. the first couple of years I could do that. Well, that's interesting um, to me because I haven't ever done a professional past life regression with with a um, practitioner, but I've tried the meditations and things and same. I, I never, nothing ever really happens. I usually fall asleep um, and I don't trust it. I'm like, I don't know. Cause people have asked me just in a class, like, who are you? And I'm like, I don't know. I guess I'm this guy. And I did come up with a name at a time, but it didn't feel real. And I just felt like I made the whole thing up. Um, and, but there was one night where I was meditating and I was listening to binaural beats. And all of a sudden I started to sort of go into this other place and it happened. It was so weird. All of a sudden I was standing. It was so vivid. Like you're describing, I could see every detail. I was standing. I felt like I was in a Robert Frost poem. And I saw these, I was in the snow and I saw these street lamps and it was nighttime and it was snowing. And I looked in the windows and I could see all these little candles in the windows. And it, I don't want to say frightened me, but I was like, what was that? And I just grabbed onto my partner at the time. And I said to him, I'm like, something, something just happened. I wasn't, I just went somewhere else. And it was like, I was standing somewhere else in the snow. And now I'm wondering if that wasn't that. Um, but the other thing that I wanted to touch on, though, is, <coughs> yeah, it's similar in mediumship where uh, when we talk about knowing it's real because it's so vivid, um, I'm trying to articulate this, but it's so uh, esoteric to try to try to pinpoint. But a lot of times, for instance, when I do mediumship, it isn't. I don't see a spirit. Like I don't look at you personally. I don't look at you and see spirit there. I just telepathically have a knowing of the, per I'll just know, like, this is a person that's close to you. You know, I'll just be like, I see, I just feel there's a man named Randall to you, you know, and I believe, and, and I just know it. Um, and I think we often look for those moments of it being so clear. And it actually encourages me to actually try to do I, I want to go to Wendy Rose Williams, who introduced the two of us um, and have her do one for me. I never wanted to sort of invest in it, knowing that my past experience was it felt like I was making it up. However, yeah. I thought mediumship feels like I'm making it up. And all of my teachers have told me that when you're doing a reading, you will feel like you're making it up. The way you know you're not is when the person validates that what you're saying yeah. is true. So, yeah. yeah, I was on the, about the I was on the Katie Couric show. 
about my book one time, <laughs> and uh, she she had herself hypnotized regression. Now she's always had a big interest in steamboats and all this, and this life. And sure enough, she went to past life, and I guess she was a steamboat captain or something. But she was saying, oh. "Wait, just maybe I only seen this in the regression because I love it type yeah. thing." So how do you you know how do you how do you distinguish between the two? I, mean, I that's know what, that was her basic idea is that yeah they hypnotize her. And she she saw went back and saw herself at steamboat, you know, hanging out with the captain or working on a steamboat. And but to this life, she's always had a very fast age steamboats. So again, she was terribly totally convinced simply because she wasn't sure if it was just a bleed over of this life or really or it was real. Absolutely, that's something that now I'm starting to see, which is so again esoteric and hard to grasp. But that that the concept of other dimensions and there is no time and all of these sort of metaphysical concepts and you start to realize I had that recently where I realized I was like as a kid I was really um, interested in this one like actor and later in life I met someone who reminded me so much of him and I thought oh my gosh I'm so drawn towards this person he reminds me of that particular kid and then I realized what if it's the other way around? What if I already knew I was going to meet this person? And as a child, I knew that he looked familiar and therefore I was fixated on that person because he reminded me of the future person that I was going to meet. And it just boggles the mind. And I love that this opens up this idea of maybe things really aren't, uh, well, you know, what we think it is. And that, the, you know, there's all that stuff about, is this a hologram? are there aliens that are just creating us that, you know, all these different things, but it's so interesting to think about. And I have seen so many compelling documentaries. I used to not believe in reincarnation. And then I saw some very compelling documentaries about children who know things. Believe me, before this, I had no belief in reincarnation. That that belief, none none at all. But one point point I wanted to make on this, uh, you know, I was very fortunate in this instance to have a person leave a diary. You know, right. so you can read, and you know, you think, what's the odds that person yeah, no. will leave a diary and it'll still be here? And I have other people ask me, okay, if Becca was such a no-name painter, not famous at all, why would they keep his diary? Right. What would be important? And that's a good question. The reason was that Beckwith, even though he wasn't very successful as a painter, was kind of a social butterfly in his day. He got out to a lot of social things, and he eventually knew all kind of famous people. For example, he knew. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt and them went to lunch together all the time. He knew uh, Claude Monet, the famous painter. He was good friends with him. Him and Mark Twain were actually neighbors up in the Catskills. They both had several women in the Catskills. Oscar Wilde, when the Oscar Wilde came to America, he actually stayed with Beckwith in his apartment. He knew Sarah Bernhardt, the actress. Well, his diary contains all bunch of little anecdotes about these people. Matter of fact, when I was writing this book, I had a lady who was writing a, a biography of uh, Mark Twain, and she she knew that I had actually accessed the Beckwith diaries, and she asked me, "says I really don't want to read seventeen thousand pages. Did you ever find any anecdotes about him and Mark Twain in a diary?" And I did, and I gave her some of the quotes from the diary, and that's basically not because of Beckwith was anybody at all. He really wasn't. He was not important. He didn't do anything world shattering, but he knew an awful lot of famous people. And he wrote about him in his diary. So people who are writers are all the time access his diary, not because they care about him, but because he has little anecdotes about very famous people. And, you know, if you're writing, if you're a writer, you know, you want to put something in your book that nobody else has. 
about right. this person. Yeah. And that's how they, that's why they use his diary. And again, I found some interesting things about Mark Twain and him that she could, she would use in her book because of Beckwith's diaries. And that's, that's really not because of Beckwith. That's the main reason they've been saved. Yeah, that's, I, I love that too. I also, when I was younger, I lived in Paris, France, I studied abroad and then I loved it. The minute I got there, I felt like I've been here before. I felt like I've never felt more at home anywhere. I fully felt like this is my home. And so I ended up going back after college and still had that same feeling. And I've had other like mediums say, you were, you lived in France in another year, in another life. Um, and it's, it's so interesting to think how you form these attachments. Are there things uh, since this has happened and since you've continued to sort of get to know Beckwith and, um, and, and continue to study have there been things that you found that are parallels between your life and his or themes in his life that Tons. came up in this one? Mm -hmm. Tons, yes. I, yeah, I find uh, I'm surprised how many similarities you find. I mean, they're not, nothing really big. Yeah. But everything, but again, like a lot of my formations, they're small things, but they're very similar type things. I've found, found a ton of them. It, is a, it, it gets kind of disconcerting at a while. Like, you know, you find these kind of things. It's like, you know, What's the odds you could that could happen or that could happen type thing, you know? But again, it's you know, it's it's I suppose if you know if you believe in past lives, I suppose you might have some carryover. Who knows? I don't right. know. again, I don't know enough about past life to know what it would be, but it seemed like you could have some carryover anyway. I didn't tell you one other thing I'll tell you about. Well, I was uh, went to New York to do some research on my book for us for while I was writing it because Beckwith lived most of his life in the, he he went to Fair Paris for a while. He actually was raised in Chicago. And he went to to Paris to study. When he came back, he settled in New York City, and he lived there until he died, mostly in New York City. So I went there to kind of look and see if I could find the places he'd been. Well, there's nothing left. And he lived there in the late 1800s, late 1900s. All the buildings are gone. Everything's gone, but I did find like I got this death certificate at the bottom of it said he's buried in Kensico Cemetery, which is in Valhalla, New York, which is a suburb north of New York City. And then while I was saying that, while I was doing my research, I thought, how cool would it be to go visit your own grave? Yeah, I mean, come on. But at the same time, it's a little spooky too, you know. To think about it. But I thought, so the last day I was there, I got a got on a train and went up to Valhalla, New York. Of where he's at. So, but uh, Kensico Cemetery is a huge cemetery. A lot of famous people buried there. It's a beautiful, beautiful cemetery. Lots of big, gigantic mausoleums and stuff. Very wealthy people. So, I went to the office and I asked him, uh, you know, uh, where his grave is. I'm looking for a Carol Beckwith's grave. They look it up and they give you a map and drew the way to get there. So, it was a really beautiful day there. So, I walked through there admiring all the beautiful parts of the cemetery. But anyway, when I find found Beckwith's grave, I could see it. As I walked up to it, I got this terrible anxiety attack, and I have no idea why. When I first become a police officer, you're brand new. You go to you you go into a really scary situation. You have you know the real anxiety attack. I, I always found one thing that happened: my left knee starts shaking real bad. Just my left knee, not my right. My left would shake when I got into a really scary situation. When I start walking to Becker's grave, I could feel my heart pumped. I could feel my heartbeat. My left knee was shaking. I had electricity run my arms. And I thought. I'm thinking to myself at the time, Bob, this is stupid. There can't be no spirit, ghost or anything here. Any spirit was in him is in you. So it's not there. But I could not get over this anxiety attack. So I actually walked up, looked at the, looked at the grave, and I took up a couple of photos for my book. But I could not get rid of this anxiety attack. It was just it was just horrific. I mean, it was just like I was terrified. And I have no idea why. 
So finally, uh, I see some there were men working on some hedges close by. So I went over, went over to ask them to take a picture of me at the grave. Just number one to, for the book, number two, show I wasn't scared. You know how men are. Yeah, men are. But anyway, but finally, when I walked in the grave, the, the, the fact was gone. It was, no, it was gone. There was no problem. It was, once I got about full, maybe 10 feet of the grave, it was gone. So I asked the guy, so I went back over the grave to him take a picture of me. And the anxiety back had come back again. Terrible. My hands were sweating. I could, like I said, my knee was shaking. I could feel electricity run up my arms. My heart beat. I have no idea. And I never have figured out why. I've had a number of people try to explain why it was, but I have figured out why. Maybe you're not supposed to do that. Maybe you're not supposed to visit the grave of your past life. I don't, <laughs> I can't explain it. I don't know why it happened, but it was awful. It was a terrible, I mean, I had this terrible anxiety attack when I'm standing at his grave. But you know, the only thing in there is a body. Any kind, any kind of soul or spirit should be, should be in me. So there shouldn't be anything there to be afraid of. I could, I kept telling myself that, that there's nothing. But my body didn't want to listen. It just kept going through the same anxiety attack. And I don't, I don't know why. I have no idea why. Well, and I've had several people try to explain things, but yeah. I, don't, I still don't understand why. Well, my understanding um, is that when a soul reincarnates, it doesn't mean. It's you have one higher self. That's your the grit, the soul that you all that you come from. But it's not, it doesn't just recycle, right? Because if if he's in you, let's say I'm his granddaughter and I see a medium, and she's still able to bring through his spirit, and he still has his same personality, his same likes and dislikes, and he can validate things that happened in our life together. That's because you can be, it's a it's one of those things that doesn't make sense in our earthly plane but monica the medium my teacher describes it as there's a clementine fruit and the fruit is your higher self your higher soul and it has little wedges in it it has little pieces so each piece of that clementine is a different lifetime or um person so you could be you can actually be existing as different people at the same time but you're all part of the same source energy so just because his soul is reincarnated into you, he still maintains his own identity, which is confusing, but it isn't in the realm of the other side. It's just, we can't wrap our brains around it. So it could be um, your anxiety attack wasn't necessarily a negative energy, but mediums, we get anxiety just from interacting with spirit in general, because it it's a, it's a sensation that's foreign to us and we're absorbing other people's energy and memories and all of these things. And it could trigger a panic attack. You have your own Bob soul. And then it's almost, I would almost say it's like you share a soul, which isn't quite it either. Um, but he's still who he is and you're still who you are. So when you go to the other side, you know, hey, you might even run into him up there, but, but you're part of the same source, higher soul, higher spirit. Well, I'm sorry. I certainly don't know if about to, to to understand it. But I just know it was a terrible time there. But finally, I get ten foot in the grave. It's gone. It, it, it goes away. But I decide that's the last time I visited this grave. That once was enough. Yeah, that's so. That's so cool that you did. Now, since then, have you done any more past life regressions for yourself to sort of delve deeper and see what well, else actually, might come up? I, I, what I was trying to find. About what this is all about. I actually went to Dr. Griffiths for a second regression. And I went to the same state that was the first one. Everything is very clear. But every time she says, go back to the life of you know the artist, uh, nothing happened. 
she kept saying, she did it maybe a half dozen times. She's go back to her life. Nope. And that wouldn't happen. She told me afterwards that, you know, you know everything you need to know. Yeah. At the time, I didn't. At the time, I didn't think I was so. But apparently, she turned out she's right. I went back some other lives and that during that for a very vivid life, but they were so far back in history. There's no way to. I saw myself as a Greek teacher, as a as a Chinese warrior, some as a, as a, a medieval monk. But, but they were all very vivid. But there's no way you could verify these. You know, it's, it's just you don't know. You could have read about it in books or seen on the movie too. So there's no way you could really. Yeah, no, there's I, no I, way like to back confirm. With, there's no verification of them. Now, I that, did also yeah. have, an idea, have an idea that after the Beckwith book about maybe I would investigate other people's regressions. I thought, well, if I get some other. Yeah. So I actually gave a speech at the International Association of Past Life Research and Therapies. It was a group of psychologists and psychiatrists who use past life regression therapy. I gave a speech at their, their national conference. And I asked a bunch of them there if they would send me. If they had any cases look like it's verifiable, please send them to me. Later, I did get a lot of different cases. They aren't verifiable. I find most people, you know, they say, you know, like one guy, had, he was a farmer named John in Iowa in the mid-1800s. Okay. That was most, mostly all they had. It's like, you get, you never get anything substantial. Nothing you can really dig into it and see if this is really true. Very seldom you ever get the full name. And most times it was just mostly fuzzy stuff. They say most people wouldn't see it really clearly. I had one case, I remember, where a sister was, was got into somehow got in a lake was drowning and her brother jumped in to save her and this the person was seeing was a brother and he drowned too but there was no location you know where you could actually look up you know actually look up news stories about this actually happening type thing there was i had no real location for it so it was that kind of thing i never i got i probably got oh, 50 60 cases from psychiatrists there's none that you could really put grasp on that's i was so fortunate with beckman to find the diary, to have the diaries and all, to actually be able, because you know a diary, think about it, he said he kept his diary going until he died at 65. You get a glimpse of every day of a person's life, every single day. Then of course the problem is, of course, in a diary, you only make a few sentences about something that is really important, because all you need to do is remind yourself of it, then you remember what it is. That was always, he'd leave some tantalizing type of little excerpt, you wonder if it's just what he, what's he talking about type thing. But I was very fortunate to have the diary because I was able to do it. I was able to confirm everything I'd seen. But it was, again, it's one of those things where very, very few people have that, I found. Very few people get regressions. I didn't realize what I had apparently is called a full sensory regression. I could say, I could taste, smell, feel, and see, and hear. And apparently, that's pretty rare. I didn't realize that was fairly pretty rare. Because again, so I'd never done it before. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you were a skeptic. And that's the other thing. I've always been skeptical that it would work for me. Not because I'm a skeptic about, but because I tend to have a very logical mind and I'm like, you're now going deeper. No, I'm not. I'm aware that I'm not. And I always wondered if they could hypnotize me because I'm a little too self-aware and a little too uh, skeptical of things and cynical about things in a sense. Um, so I really love hearing that that happened for you. Um, and it does make me curious about trying it. And I want to know too, how has this whole experience changed your entire worldview, um, your perspective on things, and um, what else has it opened up for you? Well, you know, the thing about, again, that was the hardest part, not accepting what I'd found, but what it means. But, you know, really, if you think about it from her, because like the homicide, some of these cases, you've got a three-year-old child beat to death by their parents. Now, you think, if you believe in the judo Christian idea, this is the only life you get, what's the point? 
What's yeah. the point of a person you're or he's three years old? I've had you know, you know, infants killed by parents type thing. You think, what was the point of this life? If the person only got the experience, you know, a year or eight months or six months or two years of life, what was the whole point of it? There was no real point to it. But you look at the if you look at the world through reincarnation, it really makes sense. It, it's there's a innate fairness. For example, I suppose you're born in this world with a terrible handicap. You go through your whole life with this terrible handicap that other people don't have that really stops you from doing anything important. You think, where's the fairness? Where's the fairness in that? Why would God suddenly pick you to get it? Believe or else fine. Or for example, you got, you know, you got two, two babies going to be born. Okay. One of, one of the mothers is a crack addict. The other is an upper middle class person. How does God decide who gets which one? Well, yeah. gee, I like you. You get, you get the middle class. I don't like you. You get the crack addict. But if you look at the reincarnation viewpoint, the world's very fair. Because everybody gets their chance to be Donald Trump. Everybody gets their chance to be an untouchable Calcutta. I mean, everybody has the bad lives, but everybody has the good lives, too. Because mm -hmm. if you look at Becker's life, he had a really pretty good life. He never was really wanting for anything. He never had any real bad things ever happen to him, really. I mean, he died and stuff. But I mean, nobody, you know, he didn't have no traumatic things happen during his life. He had a really pretty easy life because, again, his dad was a wholesale grocer and pretty successful. So he was raised in some very good good circumstances when he grew up. And, again, he was pretty, pretty well off company money-wise. And he had, you know, he whined constantly. He wasn't. He really was. Again, if you can afford to build a house in the Catskills and go to Europe every year. Matter of fact, one time I think I'd read somewhere, but he was whining in his diary that they were so poor they were down to two servants. Now you think, how bad? You're down to two servants. Yeah, you're yeah, really bad. You you're, have... down, you're in bad shape. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I think it's interesting because I know I've sort of uh, had a spiritual awakening halfway through my life that I now see everything so differently. And I wonder, do you also, I mean, I, um, I also started out, I've said this a million times on the show, but I'll tell you, I started out as a criminal justice major. I wanted to go into forensics and homicide and realized that, no, I just wanted to be an actor. I didn't really want to, I don't really have the constitution for that kind of, first of all, I don't even have the energy for that schedule, but I was so fascinated by that whole world. And that's interesting when I would, that was when I was more of an atheist and more of an agnostic and as I've expanded, I can't even watch anything. I used to be a true crime junkie. I can't even really listen to it or watch it very often anymore. Um, as I've started to see the world through a spiritual lens, it's it's um, I see things so differently now that I have this. That's why this is called Magic is Real, because I'm starting now every day. I'm just like fascinated by the world because I now see it isn't just what we see here there's so much more going on and so it feels like a kaleidoscope and i'm excited every day to explore it and i wonder if you've had sort of a similar feeling um in terms of wow there's so much more going on here and especially you know being retired it's like you want to have that um you know you, you got to have your like you're now a writer i mean you've been a writer but this is time for you to to focus on your work so um how has this changed just sort of your everyday life well, I mean, again, the world is a nicer place than I thought it was. When, when I was yeah. a police officer, the world was not a great place. I mean, for homicide detectives or any, any regular police officer, you deal with a lot of bad people and bad situations. The world looks pretty miserable. But if you look from a reincarnation point, the world's, a, like I said, it's a very fair, very fair, everybody, like I said, you might have bad things happen in this life, but next life you won't. You know, next life you could be a, a really good, comfortable life, I think. 
but you know, it's interesting because I've had people ask me what if I believe in the if I believe in astrology and crystals, and I tell them they they seem stunned. I tell them no. Yeah. Hey, do you believe in angels and this stuff? No, simply because I didn't believe in reincarnation. I thought it was phony and baloney until I proved to myself. Now, if you could prove to me with the same level of proof I have that astrology is real or angels are real or crystal power is real, then I'll believe it. But uh, I've still got the hard-headed police outlook on that. I really, because people seem stunned sometimes. I won't believe some these, these other new age ideas. But I wouldn't have believed in reincarnation. But it got, it, you know, it could, you know. It got, I got approved. I proved to me. It got proven to me that it's real. But again, I wouldn't have believed that if it had. And that's why I, I, people are always funny. But they didn't think, oh, you got to believe all these really things. No, I don't. I'm sorry. Prove it to me, and I will. That's yeah, what comes I'm, from 38 years of police work. That's what comes. You can prove smart. it to me. I think it's yeah. smart. And I, that's why I like to have people on the show who are grounded and who have an ounce of skepticism and who are relatable in that way. And one of my best friends um, is a Christian, and she asked me, the other day, she's like, how do you not? She's like, I don't get why you don't believe why you believe in all this, but you don't believe in Satan. And I said, I'm not saying Satan doesn't exist. I just haven't seen proof of it myself. I said, I've had proof that I can communicate with the other side. It's enough proof now for me to after doing like 100 something readings, I'm like, all right, now I'm starting to believe. And it took like, I mean, it took lots and lots of readings for me to be like, okay, it's definitely real. It's definitely real. But I said, it's not that I am saying I don't, I just can't say that I do because I've had no experience with it. I haven't seen it with my own eyes. I haven't experienced it. So that's all it's, I don't, and I'm skeptical sometimes about astrology and those kinds of things. Um, I still follow it. I'm still interested in it. Um, but, and, but I, I definitely think it's very smart to keep an open mind and to, and also when I say things like reincarnation, it's the, or it's the Clementine analogy. I believe that I don't know that that's the truth. Um, but that makes sense to me based on everything that I've, the information that I've gathered from doing my own research and, ex, and experience. So you're right. You're an, when you're an investigator, you need to see the proof and it doesn't even have to be it, proof sometimes isn't going to be proven in a court of law, but I can tell you when I'm communicating with spirit, I know how it feels. Um, a friend of mine said the other day, but I'm very skeptical because you could just be doing a trick. I said, do you think I didn't ask myself that every time I did a reading? Did I just, is it some kind of a party trick? Am I reading their energy? Am I watching their eyes? Is there, am I assuming things about them? Sometimes that's, that happens yeah. because we're human. But I said, but once you start, once I started to really get into it, I'm telling you, I said, I feel spirit and it is a different feeling than I've ever felt before. And when I'm right, I feel even more of the spirit energy. And when the person says, yes, that's correct. And I bring through, I was reading somebody and I said, he's showing me, it was her, her young husband who passed. He said, he's showing me an old cereal box. It's a kid from the 1950s. I kind of see like a Christmas story vibe um of like the 1950s and this kid is collecting prizes from a cereal box she said that was a hobby of his he collected those old-timey cereal boxes with prizes and I was like how would I ever know that how would I even think of something I've never thought that in my life and that's I said you know I'm not here to prove it to you I just have to tell you that that has happened a hundred times or more and that's why I believe I don't and I still don't can't tell you it's real I just believe it is but unfortunately, it's only to prove to you. Yes. Not to, not to anybody on the outside say, yeah, you know, is it true or not? You believe it is because it happened to you. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. 
but I don't know that it's true. I just have faith that it is. Because in my book, one time I appeared on a TV program called Proof Positive. I was at work and somebody called me and said, we like you to appear on our program. It's a new television program, Proof Positive. I said, okay, I like to appear So we want to give you a lie detector test on national television about your book. Now, I agreed to it. I didn't want to. Yeah. Now, people say, well, why wouldn't you want to if it's true? There's a really good reason. Lie detectors are only about 80%. Yes. At best, 80%. Now, people don't know that. We use them mainly, police officers use them mainly as a psychological, not a, not a real proof gathering tool, as a psychological tool. We get a case, he's lying to me. I know he's lying to me. He knows he's lying to me, but he mm -hmm. won't admit it. You, you put him on a lie detector and say, you're lying. Most of them say, you're right. You got yeah. me, type thing. So anyway, they want me to take a lie detector. And I was really, I, I was not that I'm, you know, I, I'm not nervous about everything was true or not true, but it means one out of every five questions the lie detector person asks you, they're going to they're going to get it wrong. They're going to say you're telling the truth or you're lying, or more worse than me, they're going to say you're lying when you're telling the truth. Now, if you're on national television and he says I'm lying, who's going, who's going, what's what's the viewer going to believe? They're going right. to believe oh this is just a technical error. No, they're going to be able to lie. I took it, and I did fine, but it was kind of a scary moment to, to have to go on TV and take a lie detector test. And you're I'm supposed sure. to, the funny thing, you're supposed to be very calm during a lie detector test. You're supposed to be in a quiet room. I'm there with cameras and directors. Hey, you're on TV. You're not, <laughs> yeah, not a I'm, professional no, actor. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a hoot. But again, I passed it without any problem. But it's, it's one of those things where, wow, I don't, want to, I don't think I want to do that again. Only because you have more, because I've had people tell me later, would you take a lie detector test? No, only because the more tests you take, I actually took two of them, by the way. Not just one, I took two. The more you take, the more likely you're going to run into a statistical error, but you're going to run into that 80% thing eventually, the more tests you take. Two is fine. I took two. Two is fine. I don't really need to take any more. I'm really afraid I would. And right. again, the audience is going to think, uh-huh, hey, he's lying. Yeah. Right. And with yeah, well, what but do I you did, work I did take I did take two and pass, so I, I feel good about that. Yeah. Well, I... I want, I'd love for you to share, what is it that you're, I know that you're doing a lot of writing now. Um, yeah. what, what are you working on now? Well, actually, uh, actually Beck was the only book that's not about uh, police work. I write books on police procedure, uh, how to find missing persons, SWAT teams, uh, various other, you know, how, how SWAT teams operate, what they do. They're all the place, all about police work stuff. So I, I'm working now on the second edition of a book I wrote a long time ago. It was actually one of my better selling books. So I wanted to update, update it to the present day because all the technology I think about my book. Actually, it was kind of interesting, but the book was, I wrote the book in 1995, up to last year, it was a, the book was called SWAT Teams. And up to last year, I was getting, I still got royalties on it from 1995 up to 2020. The last year was the first year I didn't get any royalties on it. So I feel pretty good about this book. I really yeah. did. So I thought, <laughs> I need, it begins, the, the technology in 1995 is so antiquated now that I wanted to write a second edition and update all the technology. Of what, what they could do now to where what the SWAT teams could do then. So yeah. that's what I'm presently working on. Well, I just, I, oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, again, thank you so much. I think it really is important to have people share these stories who are who are skeptical, who are have a healthy dose of skepticism, who come from a background, a logical background, who are clearly extremely intelligent and very grounded to share these extraordinary stories, because I think that um, can sort of help get the word out to more people that, hey, uh, it's worth exploring, it's worth thinking about. And, and as we've said, it's not our job to convince anybody. That's, 
I, I, I've said that it's not, I don't need to convince anyone. I'm just sharing something that I hope will bring some hope and spark some interest and be interesting. And I think that it's really, um, it's really great that you're doing, that you're doing this work and also coming out with this story as somebody who is, um, you know, regarded in your field as uh, law enforcement, um, I think can probably be a little bit uncomfortable, but I just commend you for stepping out of your comfort zone and, and, and sharing and, and allowing uh, it to be explored. Because I think as we progress more and more scientists are starting to incorporate the metaphysical, um, say paranormal, I, I don't think it's out of the norm at all. Um, but I, but we think of it as something we, we don't know. So I just want to thank you so much for, um, yeah, my, my pleasure. Um, and I also just want to say thank you everyone who's here listening and who continues to support the show. If you want to see more content like this, like subscribe, share with like-minded friends. You can see how to support the show in the description. And again, it is Bob Snow. And the book is called Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic. Where can you get the book? Yeah, on Amazon. Right? On right. Amazon? Barnes and Noble, anywhere. Yeah. Fantastic. And I will have links below in the description. So I wish you all a beautiful week, evening, day, night. And again, thank you for being here. And thank you, Bob. Okay, thank you for asking me.